Anyone up for a trail 50k in the St. Albans area on Saturday 17th this month is welcome to join me. Accommodation provided. I would love to join you but I am doing my last long race of the season this Sunday, the Yorkshireman Trail Marathon from Howarth. Thank you for the offer and I demand a full, unexpurgated post-race debrief. I am running with the Croatian guy I mentioned, who will soon be joining our squad. A Marco into your Obi Williams. I am Gary, slim face obviously. Clearly Mike is Howard. Which leaves Bob as Jason. Surely a better rock and roll collection of shambling northerners with whom to draw comparisons to our good selves would be Oasis. We have the central sibling relationship on which all our success hinges, although the ages are reversed so Mark is our Noel, sage wisdom and charisma from a diminutive yet authoritative leader. Mike is Liam, an enigma wrapped in someone else's clothing, without whom the group doesn't really sing. Tim is reliable paradiddling sticksman Alan White, providing the backbeat to our word on the street. Nick is Jem Archer, nice hair, expensive clothes, a flair player. Other mark is Paul Bonehead Arthurs, a reliable rhythm section except when he drops out. And I am that tall one on bass in the final incarnation, Andy something, was in another band first, but seemed to fit in quite well. Hi, and welcome to our podcast about the Bob Graham Round. A 66-ish mile run in the Lake District up and over 42 of England's tallest mountains in under 24 hours. Recorded throughout 2018 and 2019, this is an audio account of a year preparing for and attempting the BGR. These are our Bob Graham sounds. In the face of the Bob Graham rounds, a moment of truth, at least once, and that moment of truth will hit you where you have to make the decision whether you're going to finish or whether you're going to quit. And you will face that, and that's such a key decision. Now, will I or won't I, once you decide I'm going to finish, the only question you've got to decide after that is, how am I going to finish? How, what do I need to do to be able to finish? And that's a different mindset than am I or am I not going to. inspiring words that were left running round my head through November 2018 after I'd met Dominic Irvin to hear about his ultra-endurance cycling exploits. Dom Irvin, I've known you for a few years. Yes. And we'll, we'll come to how we got in, in touch with each other the first time round yes. and what have you, but most recently, just last week, I listened to you do a talk about your latest endurance endeavour, which was um, a brilliant talk. There were a few interesting things in your talk that I thought, ah, oh, I must ask Dom a bit more about that, so I'll try and come to them. As with Helen Hall in episode two, I think endurance-minded folk of all levels and abilities will get a lot from hearing Dom's stories about his adventures. Neither Helen nor Dom are famous. You won't hear them on other podcasts, so enjoy this exclusive access to great wisdom learned from their experience. Now, Dom is a cyclist, but as you'll hear, he applies his lessons to the Bob Graham and other ultra events easily. He was very generous with his time, so let me just plug something for him. Of particular interest to those who like riding bikes will be the book he wrote with Professor Simon Jobson, more about him later, Ultra Endurance Cycling, an expert guide to endurance cycling. It's on Amazon, it's 18.99, and it's all about endurance cycling. Now, settle in for a good chat with Dom. This took place around his kitchen table in his rather lovely home in Hampshire and is interspersed with one or two interruptions from me, which I hope add to the experience. To start with, you said that you had an, in, uh, an outdoor pursuits background. Yes. Was that a, a job or just a love of the great outdoors? No, I, I, uh, my first year was actually a sports degree. And from that, I went to start work in the outdoors and worked in uh, an outdoor centre as, as an instructor. And then sort of took on a sort of management role in that sort of setup. So kayaking, climbing, hill walking, all that sort of stuff. And then you said in the talk that foot and mouth came along yes. denied your access to the great outdoors yes and so then you used running as the replacement was that right yes yeah, so it was uh, it was exactly that it was uh, you couldn't get onto the crags you couldn't get off road you couldn't do anything so it was basically right what do i do and so i started doing a little bit of running 
and um, and then I really found I really enjoyed it actually. And when the foot and mouth passed, uh, I started to run off road and and started to do a little bit more of that. And a friend of mine sort of said, "Oh look, have you ever thought of doing triathlons?" So the so he persuaded me over one evening over too much wine and food and all that sort of other stuff that I should enter my first triathlon, which is an Ironman distance event. So I went from never having done any triathlon at all to doing an Ironman as my first one. So that's how I got into triathlons, which then led to cycling and so on. So. Okay. Uh, and did you enter sort of 10Ks and marathons and things as a runner? Did you, did you have any form to sort of give people... Fell a- racing. I did right. quite a few fell races. So I lived up in Yorkshire at the time. So right. I went out and did some fell racing, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was a fantastic sport. Um, but I'm, I'm not really built as a, as a fell runner. You know, fell runners are whippet-like, thin sticks, a bit like you, Bob, actually. <laughs> so, you know, ideally suited to that sort of terrain, and I'm not. Uh, but I, 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 love that, I love that type of terrain and things, but I wasn't really interested in doing 10Ks and marathons. My first marathon was, was in an Ironman. Right. Uh, and how did you do in the Ironman? Yeah, the first one was okay. It, uh, I can't say my Ironman times were very impressive. I think my first one was 11 hours, 26 minutes or something like that. And, uh, but that was okay. Yeah, that seems pretty good. That seems, yeah, pretty good. Now, that's not me throwing shade on poor Dom. It's a great time. Runtry.com analysed 41,000 finishes in 25 Ironman triathlons and found the average triathlete took 12 hours 35 minutes. So 11 hours 26 minutes is really good. But it's not mega elite. And I labour this point only to say that I chose to speak to Dom because I think he, to misquote Matt Damon, science the shit out of his talents. He's a decent, slightly above average, 50-ish-year-old amateur endurance sports lover. But as you'll hear, by the appliance of sports science, he's a British cycling Land's End to John O'Groats record holder. And he's the winner of a 2,700-mile mountain bike race. Encouragement for all of us amateurs with lofty ambitions. So listen up, there's lots to learn. And then... The cycling was the thing that you loved, so you yeah. So, so what happened was my knees gradually began to play up. So I found myself really struggling to run downhill. Then I found myself struggling to run uphill. Then I found myself struggling to run on the flat. I thought, okay, this is. I need to face the reality here that that my knees are not going to be able to allow me to run much more. And I really liked cycling. And the thing was, in Ironman, the cycling distance hundred and twelve miles. So where do you go from that? Because going shorter didn't seem to didn't really have much appeal so that got me into the world of ultra distance cycling so uh, I went and did race across the Alps which is about I think 365 kilometers or something they led 10 11,000 meters of climbing or something and, and struggled my way through that but thought my god I think I found I think I found what I like doing here and then uh, this sort of brings us up to when I first met you which was in the build-up to one of your attempts at the uh, Land's End to John O'Groats tandem Record. Yes, yes. Now, the bit in your uh, talk the other night that I th- thought was interesting is you said that you sort of had the idea to give that record a go Yes. because of a work uh, connection. Yeah, so, so as an organisation, we spend our time helping individuals and teams and organisations kind of improve their, the way they work together and their effectiveness and their, ultimately their performance. Dom has his own company called Epiphanies and they do workplace psychology stuff. And the difficulty is, is you're, you're a catalyst of that process, but you're never part of it in that sense. So you never really know, you, you hope that what you're doing is making a difference but it's really quite hard to quantify what that difference is. And, and I think the, the thing, I, two things happen. One is I got slightly frustrated with watching all these people being really successful and thinking, well, that's quite impressive. I wouldn't mind a slice of that myself, but, but you weren't part of it. And the second thing was, was thinking, but did we actually really make a difference? Did, did, did we actually help these people succeed or would they have succeeded in spite of us or even worse, would they have done even better without us being part of it? So I wanted a challenge that would allow me to really test all the stuff we did with organized teams, individuals, teams and organizations, that if we applied everything we knew to it, could we manage to do something extraordinary as a, as a, as a sort of group of people? And so the Lambs and John Grace Talent Record really appealed because it was about teamwork, because there's two people on a bike. It required a support team, which meant having a, a virtual team in the sense that people were based all around the country. And none of them had a direct line into the project. They all had dotted lines into this project but sort of you know they had the day jobs as well so it had everything about it that we had to deal with with organizations all that sort of complexity of 
you know, goal setting, competing agendas, virtual working, uh, performance management, you know, goals, all that sort of stuff, you know, constrained resources to be able to do it. And I thought, what a great, great way of trying to do it. And the Tandem record appealed because it was such a cool record. It was the last big cycling record that hadn't, you know, from the British cycling record that um, just hadn't been broken, despite lots of people trying. So the worst that could happen was would just be another failure, like lots of other people had failed. But, but so what? We'd have had a lot of fun trying to apply the lessons. And so that's where we started. And what I didn't realise is that I, I thought it would be a year-long journey. You know, we'd, we'd have a go, we'd, we'd see how far we got, and hopefully we'd crack it, because it seemed possible to be able to crack it. I didn't realise how hard it was going to be. Um, but I didn't realise it would take five years and, and, you know, four tandem partners and three attempts and two failures and eventually would manage to get there in the end. But it was an epically hard challenge. Yeah, and I'd love to contrast in a minute your... Uh the preparation and, and you tell the story well of the of the people who held the record from the 60s uh, and and some of the techniques that you, you, you yes. told me about before that they applied to it and then and then what you did uh, i met you i think after attempt number one this was back in march of 2014 we're trying to break the landsend to john O'Groats tandem record set in 1966 which is to go from Lansden to John O'Groats in a time of less than 50 hours, 14 minutes and 25 seconds. It's an amazingly short time. It's an incredibly short time, it's true. Who were the guys in 1966 who set it? Two gentlemen by the name of Swindon and Withers who were quite an incredible tandem pair. And It's all the more impressive when you think that people like um, James Cracknell, the, the rowers, tried twice and failed to, to break the record since then. So uh, it's, it's a really impressive record to set. And were they notable, famous cyclists, or did they just gel together perfectly as a team? What do you know about them? I think, well, I've actually spoken to one of them. I think it's a combination of both, actually. I think they were very good cyclists. I think they were a very good team. You have to be a good team to be able to break a record like this. In 67, Tom Simpson, the famous oh, British cyclist, yes. died on the, on the slopes of Mont Ventoux. Yes. Uh, and the post-mortem kind of found that he was full of brandy <laughs> and amphetamines, which had kind of numbed the pain and given him an extra push to get up those mountains. How were those two fueled in 1966? What was the sports science and the technology like then? Well, it's a great question because what they ate was bread and butter pudding and what they drank was milk laced with glucose. So that's, that was their, essentially their, their, their staples, where, of course, we were able to bring a bit more science to it and you know, use electrolytes and, and various other things. Sadly, we can't use brandy and things like that, but, but I think their record, from what I spoke to them, it, those are the two principal things they consumed. That sounds divine. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, though, drinking milk laced with glucose 40-odd hours in, having drunken nothing else but that for the last day and a half or so? <laughs> it's just horrific. Bread and butter pudding's good any time of day of or night. Of course, that's fine. I've no issue with the bread and butter pudding. It's the milk laced with glucose that would do it in. Do it for me, I think. So on the second one, I did it with a chap called Glenn Longland, who's a, um, an ex-professional cyclist and a very, very talented guy, very talented cyclist indeed. But unfortunately, Glenn collapsed halfway on the trip and, and uh, ended up having to be hospitalised. So although the first one, we, we'd made it all the way and we weren't, we just weren't quick enough on the second one, we roughly on pace, but not maybe not quite there. But when Glenn collapsed, too, that was it. So, you know, then looking at thinking, right, okay, I've invested three years of hard graft plus the time preparing for it. So maybe three, four years or whatever of real hard graft to get to this point. You know, I, it, it's these really great girls, as, as you know, with the, the sort of what you're doing, really great girls, they start to, you start to obsess about them. They just start to take over your whole life. They start, everything becomes thinking about them and what you want to achieve. And this was no different. And I, and I really, really, really wanted to break this record and really believe we could. I learned enough at that stage to think, my God, this is doable, but I've just got to find someone to do it with. Yeah, so this is the point where I got excited because I think I interviewed you before that second attempt. Then then that um, went wrong. Glenn is okay, is he? Yes, yeah, so Glenn's that? fine. Glenn's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so then we had a bit of email contact because I, at the time, was cycling 45 miles a day as my commute. Yes. You know, so 220 yeah. miles a week. Yes. I was just sort of riding the crest of that, ooh, I like cycling. I've never yes. been into cycling yes. before. I was on a yes. bit of a wave there. And, and so I got in touch with you and said maybe I could uh, yes. partner you and so we had a bit of to and fro email exchange where you sort of outlined the point you'd got to at that 
at that stage of how determined you you, you basically let out that you sure you could you know maybe you could be my partner but these are the the criteria that that, that you weren't prepared to waver on and then yeah. and, the, and it was you know the coach you were yes. using and yes. the you know the sort of power meter for the bike yes. the, the the turbo trainer so that yeah. because actually the commute that you're doing won't be sufficient training it needs yes. to be periodized yes. and it needs to be specific and yes. focused and yeah. you, you know you can't do it if a traffic light's going to get in the way and so at that point i thought oh yeah this is you know i, I i'm not the, the partner for you on, on that attempt uh but you you found one is it charlie who you did it yes. with yes. and and uh well we'll come to the end of that story in a minute but um in my mind you are the guru of taking sports science sort of principles and applying them as an average you know you're a fit guy but but you're not an elite athlete absolutely no i'm not an elite athlete but you've made you've got a world record for for a tandem cycling uh uh, record and uh, and you've done lots of other brilliant things as well. So I think I think it's fascinating. But to start with, the guys that held the record, t- tell us about their approach. Oh, Peter and John, what what amazing guys they were. So this was back in 1966, and of course at that time we didn't have the sort of the road network that we have now. So they were doing it on very different sorts of roads. But neither did we have those volumes of traffic, or neither do we have. They didn't have traffic lights, whereas we had to contend with traffic lights. So there's you know pros and cons of each period of time. But those guys did the route and they did it um, at one point where they came across an accident in the road and they had to get off the bike and leg it through the field to get around the accident and get back on their bike. And they got as far as, I think it was um, Carlisle, and one of them had suffered really, really bad knee problems. So they went to the local hospital and they got the knee injected with some pain relief or whatever. And then they made it another sort of 70 or 80 miles up the road and went into another hospital and got some more. And, you know, and, and there's just this epic, epic trip that meant that they... They finally, in 66, set the record of 50 hours, 14 minutes and 25 seconds. And when you looked at that, you know, the average speed that they did was, I think, 16.9 miles an hour or something. And, you know, you look at that and you think, well, how hard can that possibly be? But these these amazing guys on their bike that was a, it wasn't even a particular, even for the time it wasn't a state-of-the-art bike. It was just a sort of a bike that one of them had that they did it on that was that was incredible so, so it was just this these incredible guys doing this amazing thing that they'd done but yet on the face of it it should have been easy to break but yet you know Olympians like James Cracknell and Rebecca Romero failed to do it and James Cracknell went back with Joan Walters who's a Australian national road cycling champion and lots of other people have had a go at this record and failed and it just so those guys, I mean, they rocked, right? I mean, to make have a record that lasted 49 years is just amazing. Let's pause Dom for a moment and come back to his ultra-distant cycling exploits after a brief update on my injury recovery and fitness in the late autumn of 2018. I suppose a big revelation for me, and it probably is obvious, really, is that I've just I've done so much cycling... And I kept going back to cycling thinking that it was okay, you know, it didn't hurt my Achilles to cycle, but I think it was never letting my Achilles recover. After working really hard with Helen to get to a point of returning to gentle running, I'd now gone backwards and the Achilles was hurting again. So is your gut feeling that it's all gone backwards since you started cycling? In which case, yes, stopping cycling would be uh, the obvious answer. So I had periods when I cut back, And then I had periods where I reintroduced the bike commuting, but with a Helen-inspired twist. Gradually, the traffic and the train times and things like that ground me down, and so I've come back round to cycling again, and now with my flat pedals, I'm really enjoying it, and my Achilles is not shouting at me about it. Yes, I know. Flat pedals. Now, some of the Voluminati out there will have passed out at this point, but Helen convinced me, clipping in cleated cycle shoes was a not good for my achilles and b it wasn't even making cycling any faster i quote flat pedals the bigger the better wear trainers and switch your drive off foot to the left it'll feel odd but by not inflaming the right achilles every time you do that its healing process can continue p.s flat pedals are not capital letters a regression. I wouldn't dream, more capital letters, of going back to cleated pedal systems. I rode them for years and the day after I put them in the bin, my functional threshold power went up 18 watts. Just testing it with a cycle, un- an uncleated cycle, just trainers and flat pedals. So I bought some and I took it on. The flat pedals had their downs as I got used to them. Actually, I slipped off the pedal and the pedal spun round and then 
whacked the back of my Achilles, so I've got kind of scratches to the skin. But they mostly had ups. I still use them. A key factor in this is that you look much less of a prat. I found that as soon as I started with flat pedals, I had to stop wearing Lycra and return to trainers, normal knee-length mountain bike shorts and a t-shirt. So the long and the short of it, at this point, November 2018, I was still struggling with my Achilles injury and was only running very occasionally and only very short downhill distances. So let's return to Dominic Irvin and his attempts to break the Land's End to John O'Groats tandem cycling record. The first attempt absolutely did not have the level of sports science that the last one did. The first attempt, we were uh, naively enthusiastic, I think is the nicest way of putting it. We went out there, we rode a lot, we did lots of stuff together, we focused on becoming a good team and um, we did a lot of miles, but the science wasn't as there as part of it. So my wife Helene was on the train coming back from London and sat opposite to her was this lady wearing an England netball jacket. And my daughter was really into netball at the time. And so she got chatting to her and said, and they got chatting about netball and things. And they got chatting about my cycling. And and, uh, she said, oh, he should meet meet my boss, a guy called Simon Jobson, who was a a lecturer at Winchester at the time, because he's really into cycling performance coaching. So my original plan was we'd approach the university and get the students to make a project of our second attempt on the basis that I could then extract as much science as I could learn about it and then apply it to to what I was doing but it very very became clear that Simon was something special in terms of his level of knowledge and insight and that actually if I if I shifted this from working with the students which is what we did and we became a great project for the students they were really helpful and stuff but I started to work with Simon and that's when the the level of performance started to shift dramatically because he's just he really really understands the physiology and you know he had the same sort of open-minded approach I think to it that I had which was let's just take whatever evidence we can and apply it as best we can to this and just take a science-based approach to this and see where we go. It wasn't Glenn's cup of tea. Glenn wasn't into the science. He was very much the old school of just go out and ride lots. But he had the pedigree to be able to do that. But I, I, I thought, if I crack this science, that's the key. And so we just ramped it up and ramped it up and ramped it up. And did you do the full sort of Brailsford marginal gains? Did you a- apply a sort of very methodical approach to your, your kit and your uh, food and water, electrolytes? So, so when you break it down, the, the, the challenge became, in essence, the challenge was really simple. How do you go faster than Olympians by going more slowly? That was the challenge because we can't outperform them because they're genetically better than us and more gifted than us. So if you can't do it by being faster than them, what other mechanisms can you find to beat them? So then what you need to do is cast, cast your net quite wide in terms of how you think about it. So on the one hand, yes, there is all the marginal gain stuff around it, but there's also you need to start thinking if the non-negotiables want to break the record and this other non-negotiable is I've got to go faster by going more slowly – I somehow got to find a path through that. And, and, and I read about a dog race in, in Alaska. And this dog race was an amazing thing because they had these, the, every year it was won by these elite teams of huskies that would go racing across and they'd sprint across the, um, across the frozen wastelands and they'd stop and recover and then they'd sprint across. Anyway, one year a team came along with some really rather sort of crap dogs. And, um, and the guy who had this team of dogs couldn't afford any better dogs than that. So he couldn't afford to go as fast as those elite dogs so what he did was just go a lot more slowly but he just didn't stop so he just kept going and kept trundling along and he'd take very short breaks but he never pushed the dogs to extremists he just kept trundling along so I went back and looked at the data of the I thought that's really interesting I went back and looked at the data of Lance and John Grosset and added up all the time people were stopping and what I realized was is when you added up all the time that all these teams had stopped and you looked at all the analysis of what they'd done actually here was this whole bunch of free time so the solution was just stopping less so it, in part it was about becoming really really good in terms of as fit as you could possibly be but the other side was stop less because if you stop less there was the secret to breaking the record and that's what we did and we're thinking of building up to the Bob Graham round which is a 24 hour run which again is similar no, no one ever runs for 24 hours do you? Yes. so you, you don't prepare for that in that way but um, how did you sort of prepare yourself for that ultra endurance then of just keeping going when you probably felt awful well, so, so the, the, the point is no one ever runs for 24 hours, and therein lies the assumption. I bet people do run for 24 hours. So, you know, we rode for 45 hours. So that, that's, you know, and in fact, the total amount of time when you added it up off the bike, all the stops totaled up 
were about 30 minutes. So we didn't stop to sleep or anything. We rode for a straight 45 hours, stopping to change our kit, stopping to you know repair a broken wheel, that sort of stuff. So then what you've got to do is you've got to work out how am I going to cope with that period of time of sleep deprivation, all those sort of things. And that comes down to putting yourself in the position where you experience what it's like. There's no substitute for it. That means going out as we did, as Charlie and I did. One of the things we did was you realise there's this, in the middle of this country, there's a zone of mental destruction which killed every team. And that was in the, basically about the Lake District. It's where, you know, it's where Glenn collapsed. It's where Rebecca Romero stopped. It's where lots of other people have ended up giving up on that particular challenge. So what we did was, right, if that's the place that's really going to mentally hammer us, what we need to do is arrive at that place in a desperate mental state to work out how we're going to cope when it comes to the record attempt. So we left here in, in, in Hampshire, rode up, uh, left on a Friday evening about uh, 7 o'clock, rode across to um, Gloucester and then rode the length of the route up to arrive at the zone of mental destruction at exactly the same point would be if we were breaking the record right. to then see how we cope with it and then carried on riding afterwards and rode over into the Yorkshire Dales to stay, stay with my uh, parents. Um, and what that enabled us to do is it enabled us to really experience what that was like, to prepare ourselves for how it was going to feel at that point because effectively you got halfway through, you're absolutely shattered, you've been riding for 24 hours and you've got to do the same thing again. So what does that actually feel like? And then once you get your head around that going, okay, Right now, we're not, then what you can do is just you know get your head around it, start practicing, do it again. You know, ride through the night on other occasions. You get used to it. And how was the team dynamic? So, was Charlie? Did you feel like Charlie was as good as you, or was uh, better than you? And you needed to up your game to keep up with him. And also the application to the process. You know, was he training enough? Did that? Did those sort of questions? So it's it's. it's so that, that comes down to the, the, the power of team. It became, it became for us a virtuous process because neither of us wanted to let the other down. So it wasn't a question of are they training as hard as me. It was a question of am I doing enough? Am I doing everything I possibly can so I don't let Charlie down? And Charlie was doing the same for me. Now, the difference between us is this: Charlie was coming to this as his very first ultra-distance event. So what we agreed was Charlie's focus would only be getting fit. That was his sole objective, was to get himself in the right state to be able to do that. Whereas because I've been through this several times before and I've done lots of other ultra racing and stuff like that, my job was to combine every single bit of knowledge I could possibly gather and bring it to, bring it to the table to be able to say, right, let's bring all this to bear on our, our attempt here to do this. Now, you know, Charlie genetically is a better cyclist than me, no question. He, he just is a more gifted person. But what I could bring to it was knowing how to ride and to share with him the experience of what that was like. And then all the other things that we did, all the sort of marginal games type stuff in, that we applied to it as well. And we happened to really like each other's company. So it ended up just being a huge amount of fun. I mean, we, we, it just really, really enjoyable. I mean, training on the bike sometimes would laugh so much you'd almost fall off the bike because you just couldn't turn the pedals because... Yeah, just the banter was really good. So it was a really virtuous experience and, and, and neither of us wanted to let each other down. So the thing Charlie and I realised is, and I remember it really, really well, it was about, it, it was in March, it was, we were riding in the middle of the night and Charlie's a super efficient rider. He's very, very aerodynamic. And I was on the back of the bike at the time and I was struggling to stay aerodynamic and I was sort of sitting up too much and was creating too much of a block into the air. And equally, Charlie... Charlie has a different pattern of changing gears going into hills than I do. So he'll tend to change way earlier than I would. And so the result of which was, you know, my legs were spinning furiously compared to where I wanted to be when he was on the front of the bike. When I was on the front of the bike, I'd be clicking through the gears at, a, at the pace that suited me. And I remember having the conversation with Charlie just saying, um, okay, look, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this, but I'm, I'm just struggling a little bit with the way you're controlling the bike. And he said, oh, you know, you know what's the issue so we've got chatting basically well do you mind if I mention something and so he said no no go go for it Charlie so said, and then once you realise that we were both so wanted this goal that it then legitimised talking about anything and everything we could sit there and have the conversation so I said okay let's talk about this because this is how it felt for me and sometimes you, you had to realise that you were in the wrong and you needed to change and sometimes they were in the wrong and needed to change but because we both wanted the goal neither of us were worried about the other saying something to us you could actually say whatever you wanted and just go right okay that's input we can do something with that and then the, then the other thing is is don't be surprised when there are things that you the comp, where you make compromises I mean clothing is an example so we had these paramo jackets now if you know anything about mountain jackets and stuff paramo is about the worst thing for for sort of speed that's on the face of the planet because they're really heavy and they're not terribly well cut 
and um, they, they're a bit baggy. And if you're riding a bike, they're aerodynamically a nightmare. However, they are the most comfortable jackets on the face of the planet when the weather's really, really bad. Right. And I remember standing in, in this room here with Charlie. We're busy getting our kit ready to go. And I got my Paramount jacket. And he said, if you wear that Paramount jacket on this record attempt, I'm getting off the bike. Because there's just no way we're going to wear those jackets. They're just they're just not suitable for this for doing this. I said, I'm just going to check it anyway because you know at the end it might be nice to put on lots of other stuff. So he said, okay. So he threw his in his in as well. And uh, towards the end of our record breaking run, the the weather turned foul and it was absolutely awful. And we're crossing this bridge and the rain came in. It's lashing down and things like this. And I, I went on the radio and just said, come on, Paramo, please. And there's silence in the back of the bike. Charlie said absolutely nothing at all. It was handed to me. We're riding along, so we didn't stop to get handed it. You just handed it as you're riding along, yeah. and putting the jacket on, zipping it up, and, and immediately thinking, oh, God, that feels fantastic. That just feels so good. I feel so... About five minutes later, there's a little crack on the radio, and Charlie's like, kind of mind, please. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there are things that, that even though you think, okay, from a pure pure technical racing point of view that you think that's you know that's just not what we're going to do but it's kit that you just know works yeah whatever that you've just got to go right i'm going to have that in the bag with me because it's just so necessary on the third attempt you did it in in what time and beat the record by how much yeah so the third attempt was in 45 hours and 11 minutes and we beat the record by shade over five hours so it was a 10 percent improvement on the record and what what year was that 2015 Fantastic. And has anyone else attempted it since? Do you know? No. Right. We knew, we knew there's a, the year we did it, we knew there's a couple of other teams lining up for it. But I think once we'd, once we'd done it, I think it was a sufficient market to say that, you know, it now needed quite a serious attempt to go yeah. again. So, uh, fantastic. Before we get to the next stage of Dom's story, which takes him to new levels of endurance wilderness and utter commitment to finish the job let's dip back into my audio diaries of that period because i think i had some of those issues running round my head not wanting to let mark down feeling that he might be fitter than me he's not injured he's training harder and i don't want to be the one that on the day of an attempt lets him down so i was obviously wrangling with all of this stuff anyway here's some of mine and mark's diary updates from that time towards the end of november i'm wanting to meet up and uh you know wrecky a leg in the lakes and i might be able to walk one but i don't think i'm going to be running one much so you know i suppose when you set yourself a big target then i find that then suddenly there's a lot of pressure on it then you know there's a time pressure and there's a, a pressure to get to a certain level of fitness and keep up with the people that you've committed to doing it with and uh, you know invest the money invest the time uh, all adds sort of layers of pressure so I'm feeling a bit uh, well a little bit low about that at the moment I do remember getting very very frustrated thinking that I would never recover and I couldn't possibly get fit enough again to even have a go at some of these events that I was talking to people like Dom Irvin about Mark, however, was doing well and was always on hand with some literary, cerebral encouragement. Hi, DJ Bob. Mark, thought I'd give you a mid-run podcast entry, which uh, probably makes me sound about as clapped out as I am. Um, and I was going to tell you about... Um, I was reading this deep survival um, book by a bloke whose name I can't remember, but it's very good. Um, and it's kind of all about why people survive um, disasters and some people don't setting aside luck of course and um, it did make me think actually that Bob Graham in a way is a bit of a sort of disaster that you create yourself so it's quite a good uh, quite a good comparison he basically said that you need to do three three things uh, the first is to um, be able to very quickly reset yourself in terms of you know what you think the goal is and where you are um, in, in a sort of situation you've got to be able to set aside your pre-existing plans and expectations and to just totally reset in, in terms of the new reality so I guess you know the bog grave that's if, when it the clag sets in or it really rains or you hurt yourself or whatever you get totally lost um, and then the next thing is you've got to be able to um, use your sense of humour and, and, and your ability to sort of put things in um, perspective to uh, to get yourself uh, get yourself going again and he was, he was saying how often it is humour that gets people through very difficult situations strangely enough 
And then the last thing actually was about conserving your energy. One of the real talents he said that people in disasters seem to have is the ability to ration the limited resources that they've got over over a very long period of time and sort of continually progress, but operating at a sort of 60% of what what you might might uh, think you're capable of achieving. And he said that people who um, you know, really sort of react very um, wildly to to a bad event burn themselves out very quickly whereas it's the sort of slow burners that um, make it through and I thought oh that's all very relevant to the to the Bob Graham um, I think I'm sort of alright at some of those things but probably not the last one very much so uh, I think that's the big lesson I, I need to learn uh, anyway onwards and upwards Wise words indeed from Mark and keep all of that in mind when you listen to this next section from our friend Dominic Irvin, endurance cyclist. Having broken a road record from Land's End to John O'Groats on the tandem, he then took to the mountains. Being an outdoor enthusiast, I've always loved being in the outdoors and being on the road has always been a bit of a compromise in Mm. terms of doing that. So I've always enjoyed a little bit of mountain biking on the side and doing stuff and I've done some races like the... um, uh, the Transpeer, which is across the top of the Pyrenees, and and, and I've done that on a single speed mountain bike, and it was just loved it, and and done various other things as well. And so I was I was began sniffing around ultra challenges around mountain biking, and there weren't very many a few years ago. I mean, there's loads now, but you know, five six years ago, there's, there was nothing out there, or, or very little out there. And then eventually, I saw this this documentary on the Tour Divide, and and, uh, and just thought, wow, that's that's the race. I've got to do that. So the Tour Divide is a 2,750-mile mountain bike race that goes either from Canada, goes from Banff in Canada down to Antelope Wells on the, on the Mexican border, or the other way around, depending on your choice. It travels along the top of the Continental Divide uh, and along the top of the Rockies, basically. And it's an off-road, self-supported race. So the idea is you, you can only use commercially available services that are available to any rider. So you can't stash any kit or anything else like that. You've just got to look after yourself the whole way and survive the whole way. You start riding and when you run out of food, you have to go and find yourself a shop and stock up and keep going along the route. So the, the, the line, the mountains, is, is, is basically the middle of the North American continent. So the water yes. flows one way into the Pacific, right. the other way into the that's, Atlantic. That's the continental divide, yes. Yes, yes, yes fantastic, exactly that. Yeah. Nice imagery. Yes. Uh, and the other thing that sort of fascinated me was it's a very technological event, as in the, the way that you're tracked, the way that it works, is there's no one with you other than the satellite tracker. So it's a curious paradox because on the one hand... The technology makes it very accessible to people. On the other hand, it is so little a part of it in terms of your ability to be able to do it because actually there are so many other factors that come into the equation. So the way it works is is that that, that for years there have been these devices called spot trackers. And spot tracker is basically it's a safety bit of kit that you carry with you that in the event of emergency you can press an SOS button and, and you know the income the helicopters and rescue and stuff like that. But it also shows your position. And so uh, when the race started that technology wasn't available. And so it was simply a question of, you know, you followed the route, you could prove you followed the route because you know if you stopped in all the various different places and things and you followed the maps then however you've done it you've bought food in shops or whatever and that was good enough yeah and it still remains that way it's is very much a sort of there's no entry fees there's no prize money you rock up at the start and if you want to be there you want to be there and there's no you don't register with anybody unless you want to be part of the race and if you want to be part of the race and you need to carry a tracker to prove that you're following the exact route and then you simply need to upload your details of your tracker to a a, a site that, that tracks it and then after that it's it's entirely down to you to follow the route and that's it. From hearing about it, watching that documentary to them doing it, how, how long was your sort of build-up? Two years. Okay. And your training, which you described briefly last week, was pretty intense. On average, I trained about 25 and a quarter hours a week, I think it was, in the year before. But actually, in the six months before the race, I think I actually averaged, I averaged 30 hours a week uh, building up to that. And I think the peak hours was about 45 hours, and, and the sort of recovery weeks were down at sort of 15, 20 hours. And so uh, essentially what that was was a lot of sort of double sessions Monday to Friday and then some fairly epic rides at the weekends. How do you keep the focus? you just got to dream of surviving this race. I mean, it's so epically hard, right? I mean, 2,700 miles is... And, and on your own in the mountains, I mean, it's, it's, it, it scares you. So that fear drives you to get fit because you think, Christ, that's so bloody hard. I just got to survive this. How the hell am I? Well, I better train some more and I better train some more. And so you just imagine yourself, 
you know, being there and, and how this is going to help you do it. So that kind of keeps you going. And your training as well wasn't just, obviously you've got to get really fit at, at cycling. So I'm guessing there's just loads of cycle sessions, but then you've got to be self-sufficient and, and plan for just how am I going to stop, eat, put up a tent, sleep. Right. So, so you must have rehearsed all of that as well. Yeah. So it's exactly like, it's exactly like you're doing the Bob Graham round and stuff. You, what you do is you have to think, right, okay, so I've got to practice it. I've got to practice bivying. So I've actually got to go out there and not just train to ride my bike, but I've got to train to ride my bike, to stop late at night, set up a bivy, bivy, pack it away, get going again the next day, buy some food if I need to buy food, keep going, and I've got to do this essentially off-road to, to do it. So you, you, the, the challenge then becomes creating routes around here to do that. So because if you rode routes that you knew, then it's hardly going to replicate the experience you're going to have on the ride. So a lot of it was about finding routes that I hadn't done before or or doing them in extreme circumstances such that I, I really sort of loaded up the pressure on myself to begin to experience how am I going to cope when it feels like that. So one example was, uh, you know, when we had the beast from the east weather that came through or yeah. all that bad snow. Um, so I rode to Paris in, in all the snow and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, which is which is great fun because a lot of the roads ended up being closed because the amount of snowfall. So, you know, and you're riding through the snow and it's, it's sort of at night and it, the blizzards are coming through and, and you know, you're finding somewhere to stop and set up a bivy and, and, and keep going again because you're just trying to bank that experience that says, right, well, if I can cope with that, that's going to help me cope with whatever happens on the trail and on, on, on the race and things. So lots of trying to find really, really fun sort of challenges just to sort of test yourself. The thing you need to have, or I, I think is essentially you need to have fantastic support. And I am very, very lucky. Helene is, is, a, is just a fantastic person, really, you know, really supportive, really encouraging, all this sort of stuff. So the way it works is a uh, typical day, because, you know, I described this during the talk was, you know, I'll, I'll, and today is no different. I'll get up around um, four o'clock-ish, 4.30-ish, uh, have a coffee, have a bit of breakfast. Uh, I'll then start my first training session somewhere around about five o'clock do a couple of hours, uh, I then try and be at my desk working, work through to about lunchtime. And if it's a really hard training week, there'll be three sessions in the day. So I might do my lunchtime session then, which will tend to be the hardest session of the day. Uh, I'll then carry on working in the afternoon and then in the evening I'll do my third session of the day. And so what that means is, is that you have no time for anything else. So you know, you either, because I'm, I'm doing my PhD at the moment as well, you're either doing your research or you're working, doing your day job or you're training that's it everything else goes by the board what it does mean is that if so things with the family i'll ride to them so if we're going to watch my daughter play do a sports match or something then i'll meet my wife there we'll watch watch her do the sport and then i'll ride home afterwards or whatever it, it is it is extreme in, in that sense to to do that so it needs a lot of tolerance around you i know that you said about the right you know, when you were in the tour divide you wanted to win it so obviously for you that you know that having that uh, goal of trying to to win it was really important i guess that the, the lands and john O'Groats was only important because it was a record to be broken yes uh, so is it worth it you know you, do you have to have a big goal to make all that all that kind of commitment to it worth it uh, it's a really interesting question Bob really interesting question I think so what I've learned is 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 not so much about it's not as, it's not necessarily the winning per se it's the goal needs to be sufficiently exciting that you just obsess about it if you want to do something really epic then if you're going to invest if you're going to invest a lot of your life doing it you better really love the idea of that goal whatever it is and the more you can love the idea of the goal then the more you've got that resilience to be able to cope with whatever you've got to do to be able to do it and so it just so happens that in in these situations is having had a taste of managing to be successful in this sport the, the you know I've got myself to a level of fitness that that's that's fantastic and so therefore it makes the idea of thinking about being able to win a possibility and therefore that provides its own element of excitement but I don't necessarily think it needs to be winning per se it just needs to be a really really cool goal it just needs to be something that fires you up and you think oh god that'd be a really cool thing to do and then after that the rest takes care of itself and then in the preparation, I loved and also raised my eyebrows at the, one of the slides you, you put up of the spreadsheet you'd created for the number of shops that there were on this route. So yes. you've got you know, 2,750 miles to cycle yes. and obviously you're going to need food yes. uh, all, the, all the way. So you'd, you'd plotted where the shops were and what time they were open, what sort of food might be available. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I know it sounds a little sad, doesn't it? But the thing, the thing about it is, is once you start, you've got no idea where you're going to end up. 
So in theory, you want to end up, you know, riding according to a schedule, but this this ride doesn't stand, you know, it abuses the hell out of a schedule because weather comes into play and injuries and all sorts of other things affect it. So what you have to do is work out not only, you know, ideally where you might be able to food, buy food, but where you might end up having to buy food if you don't get to where you want to get to, or you've got further than where you want to get to. So it did mean sitting down and I, I across the whole route, I looked at the map and I worked out where all the stores were that were on the route. And then what I also had to work out was if I arrive in a town, it's after 10 o'clock at night, can I still buy food there? And then you look at the town and go, well, I can't buy food on the route, but if I deviate from the route, I can buy food in that shop, which then means I can get it till midnight, but I'm going to have to come back onto the route and make sure I come back onto it. So you'd plot your primary place where you'd want to buy food, and then you'd plot your secondary place where if, if that one was shut, you could go and get food, and then you'd have a backup plan of where's the third place I could have to get it if both those are shut and, and I can't get what I want. So... So for every town and every place, I planned that in terms of whether it was a supermarket or a gas station or just a bar where you could buy food. And then did the same as well for bike shops. So where are all the bike shops? If I need to get something repaired that I could call in to get to them. And then also because water's an issue, uh, there are some parts of the ride that are huge distances. You've got to travel where there's no water available. So where could I get water from? And then you trawl all the blogs and people tell you, oh, there's this tap behind this church <laughs> that if you go two miles off route and you go around the back of the church, there's a little tap there and that's got fresh water. And so... You get all those, you plot those all into your route as well. And so, and then what you then, what I then also did was I then created a, a profile card for every, every GPX file I had for the whole thing. And I divided them about um, 19 GPX files. And within those profiles, the profile cards, which showed me, you know, the, the, the terrain I was going to be riding, I then plot where the locations of each of the places were as well. So that you can look at that and at a glance go, right, I've got to get to the top of this next mountain and the, the bottom of that valley that's where the next shop is that I've got to get to and so you think right okay well looking at watch now am I going to make it to that well I better get my act together because otherwise I'm not going to make it and, and so on so but all that planning what that does is it takes away takes away strain on the ride because now you don't have to worry about it anymore you don't have to worry about is there a shop there or where's the shop because yeah. you know the answer to that so that stress walks out the door it's just a question of can you get to the shop you need to get to in time before it shuts? The other bit of wisdom I've talked to other people about since was about habit forming. And you were illustrated by talking about how you put your bike each each time you stopped so that you create a habit so that you don't have to make so many decisions, which I thought was a really interesting thing as well. So habits, I think habit, habits are the key to high performance. I absolutely believe that. So the example you're using is that um, when I stopped... I always stopped. I, I learned the habit of always stopping next to a tree so I could prop the bike up against it. So I wasn't trying to get stuff out when the bike was lying down. I also learned to always leave the bike in the direction I was traveling. So if you're riding at night, it's very easy to pick up and ride the wrong way. So because, you know, you're starting off and you're not, you get a bit disoriented or whatever. So if the bike's always pointing the way you need to go, then you know that's the way you've got to go. And that, you know, all the navigation then kicks in and off you go again. The thing you need to understand about habits is that when you're thinking about logically, think, when you think about stuff now, like asking you questions and stuff, that's, that's a, a, a prefrontal cortex activity. It's taking place in the front part of your brain. When something becomes a habit, it moves to the basal ganglia, which is a different part of the brain. And a habit isn't triggered off by a logical thought. A habit is triggered off by context. So, for example, if you're a smoker, the context of picking up a mug to have a drink is what triggers you to light the cigarette. Not, I think I'm going to have a cigarette with this coffee, but the very act of picking up the cup of coffee triggers the habit of lighting a cigarette. And we, fo- we tend to focus on the routine, which is what you then do when, you know, like lighting the cigarette or whatever, rather than focusing on the cue, which is the, the first part of a habit. So the thing about habits is when you're under stress, the thing you always default to are your habits. Right. So when you're absolutely up against it, whether they're good habits or bad habits, that's what you will default to do. One of the things I've, I've worked, worked really, really hard at trying to do is trying to habitualize all the important stuff so that your massively diminished cognitive capacity, which is where you end up with when you're really, really tired and you're sleep deprived and you're all the rest of those sort of things, can focus on the problem that you're trying to solve. So if I've habitualized, my food is always in, in the pockets of my rucksack and it's always in the outside pockets of my rucksack and that's where I always go to get my food. So my food always goes in there and my uh, bike and channel is always in the front part of the bag, always in the same place. Every time I stop and I you know, wake up in the morning, I get going again. The first thing I do is, is put my stuff into the bag and I take out my chain loop and I loop my chain because I've got a routine and I've learned a habit. I've learned a sequence of events to do it. Then I don't have to think about it because I've done all the things that are important to keep the bike going, which is I've looped the chain, I've cleaned the 
chain. I've, you know, cleaned my teeth, I've done whatever I've, I've got to do. And I've, re- you know, made it into a set of routines and I've made it into a sequence of habits. Habits are made up of a cue, they're made up of a routine, and they're made up of a reward. So the cue, in the case of the coffee-drinking smoker, is the cue is picking the mug up. What's the action? So when you sit in front of your computer, the action of opening up the lid of your computer is the cue that triggers you to almost invariably open up your email. Even though you didn't want to, you probably opened up your email, right? Because the cue is opening up the laptop. That's got the basic angle triggered off, and now you're into, even though you thought you wanted to do something else entirely. So it might be, the cue might be sitting down. If if you're stopping and you sit down to do something, the act of sitting down triggers off, right, I must drink. So that's the, the, that's the cue that triggers off. And the routine is what you want to happen when you do that. So in the case of every time you stop, you want to drink, you then got to work out what's the routine I want to happen, which is, well, I want to make sure I drink and I want to make sure I eat something. And then the reward is about, right, what reward am I going to give myself if I do that? What's the reward I'm going to get for doing that? And that's the way in which you, you make something become a habit. The more effort you expend in learning all that stuff before you get there, the less strain and, and mental stress you'll have during the event itself. And there's no substitute for that preparation. I interviewed for this podcast an ultra runner called Ricky Gates, an American guy who ran all across America in 2017. Started, wow. you know, so um, it took him about six months. Yeah. And uh, he said that the food was terrible. You know, there's yes. great swathes of the Midwest of America where all you can oh. eat is what they're selling in a gas station. Yeah. And all they're selling in a gas station is real crap. You know, yes. just, you know, did you find oh. similar? Oh my goodness. Picture? You know, I remember buying some sausages cause I thought, right, I need to get some protein and then find them filled with this vile substance that they call cheese. But my God, it just made you want to retch and just think, and just, you know, just think I've got to eat this. I've got no other food in me. I've got to force this chunk down my neck. And even though you knew you needed to eat, you look at it and think, I can't do it. Yeah. I just can't eat that. So that was one of a number of challenges. Do you want to do a quick summary of some of the uh, lows and other lows of your uh, <laughs> of your ride? So whistle stop tour through the through the uh, epic experience. So is day one temperatures forty three degrees, really hot, They're struggling to swallow because of the dust. That knocked me for six a little bit. Uh, thousand miles in, tore a quad muscle, which meant I couldn't physically turn the pedals. Which you know, the point I was I was leading the race comfortably at that stage, and that brought an end to my ability to um, win outright the race. Although I still achieved some success. The result of that leg muscle was I altered the position on my saddle, which meant I had saddle sores. And the result of the saddle sores meant that I could only pedal the bike out of the saddle. So I rode, uh, I think it was about 350 miles out of the saddle uh, to make progress, which is London to Glasgow or something like that out of the saddle, which is quite a long way. And then my gears failed and I was stuck in the hardest gear, which is going through Yellowstone at the time. So 140 miles across Yellowstone and into Idaho in the biggest gear I got, which was just epically hard, trying to muscle my way over the mountains. Yeah. I mean, I just practically strained every muscle in my body. And then the next day, briefly, my gears worked, but it then lost in my easiest gear, which then the difficulty of the easiest gear was, of course, designed to get a very, very steep slope, but absolutely rubbish and on the flat. And so the only way I could make forward progress by doing that is a bit like you know, kids scooting their scooter, was if you, you know, scoot with your left foot on the ground, you can make it work. And that's what I did on my bike. But the difficulty was the part I needed to repair all this was 250 miles away. So I scooted for 250 miles, which was humiliating and unbelievably hard. But I got there and I got to where the part was. Got Just to interrupt there. So when you when you said that bit, and, and I sort of relayed some of this to my family afterwards. And, uh, and we were trying to get our heads around it. So how long did it take you to scoot yourself 250 miles? Two days. Oh. I mean, why did you just not stop at that point? I think, and there's more to come, I know, but I mean, did you still feel like it was worth doing? Because you will face, in the Bob Graham round, you will face a moment of truth at least once. And that moment of truth will hit you where you have to make the decision whether you're going to finish or whether you're going to quit. Mm. And, And you will face that. And that's such a key decision. Now, will I or won't I, once you decide I'm going to finish... The only question you've got to decide after that is, how am I going to finish? How, what do I need to do to be able to finish? And that's a different mindset than am I or am I not going to? And that occurred to me when I, when I tore the leg muscle and, and I thought, right, what are you now doing? And I thought, well, racing's over, so it's now a question of surviving, but do you want to finish this ride? And this kind of, kind of conversation going in my head, and I thought, yep, I really, really want to finish the ride, even though I'm not going to achieve my primary goal, which is to try and win this race. 
I'm now into my my sort of secondary and tertiary goals around this, which are about trying to be trying to be finished and trying to be the first northbound rider and that sort of stuff. So I thought, okay, we're now into the this next set of goals. So I'm gonna I'm going to do everything I can to finish this ride. So I've made that decision. So when it came to scooting, the question was the parties over wherever it was, in, in the small town where it was, and I am here. Now, can I make this bike move forward? I can. So if I can make the bike move forward, I can finish. So it's just a question of make the bike move forward. And that's the way I can make the bike move forward. That's it. So when those moments of truth happen, and, and, and the best way I think you can get your head around it is to, is kind of to what I use at work. I would work, I call it the CEO test. If someone walked into the room and said, let's look at this decision you're taking, how would it stack up? And if, if you know, even the hindsight we're saying is, I'm sat having to justify this decision afterwards. Oh, well, yeah, do you know what? Um, I could still make progress, but I opted not to. It doesn't sound that impressive anymore. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, I could still make progress, but it's a bit hard. That's okay. That's, that's legitimate. And, and you can't excuse your way to success. You can't get to the end of the Bob Graham round having opted out because you've got a great excuse as to why you didn't finish. All that is is an excuse for why you didn't finish. You still haven't done it. So you will face this, I guarantee it, at some point during that run. At some point, it's going to be, oh, my God, what are we going to do here? Oh, maybe we should stop. And that's the point you've got to decide, well, do I stop or am I going to finish? That's a good pep talk. Thank you. And, uh, but I do love the fact that during that 250 miles of scooting, you would pretend to be pedaling. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I was deeply humiliated by the experience. <laughs> I mean, you know, you'd see other riders. In fact, I was, I was reading a blog the other day and someone had said, oh, we, uh, we went past Dom Irvin and uh, we were intimidated by the speedies going up the hill when he came past us. And I thought, well, they don't know that five minutes before I saw, when I saw them at the hill, I was pushing and scooting with my left leg. And when, I, when they saw them coming towards me, I clipped back in, pedaled furiously until they'd gone past. And then I clipped and scooted again because it was the only way I could make progress. But Because, yes, it was deeply humiliating to be, <laughs> to be pushing your bike along. But I just had to keep my thing of thought on, the head, on, on my mind on the fact that I wanted to finish the ride. So that's how it was. So you get to the bike shop and then there's more bad news, isn't there? Well, so the point we got to is we got the bike repaired and uh, after being stuck in a small gear and all the gears are working fine, but now there's a problem with the bottom bracket and the bearings have come loose from the bottom where they go through the frame. And so I can't get it tight enough, so I decided that I'm going to sort it out when I get to a place called Butte. Uh, and the only trouble was, is because I'd arrived into this town really late, I had no food. And it was two of the hardest climbs on the bloody ride. And so for the next the sort of seven or eight hours the following day, I had absolutely no food at all. And riding over these passes with this bike that wasn't quite working was really hard. But eventually I rock up this bike shop and the guy looks at my bike and says, it's over, your bike's finished. So... On the one hand, a huge amount of relief. On the other hand, a huge amount of frustration because I'd done everything I could to get that scooted for 250 miles. I'd ridden out the saddle for 350 miles. I'd ridden with saddle sores. I'd ridden with a torn muscle. I'd ridden through, you know, ferocious heat. And this was a fantastic bike as well that you'd uh, it's an awesome had bike. designed and built uh, oh, for the event. It, it just it had been custom built for this. It had been it was a, it handled beautifully. It was a beautiful thing to ride. It was just a dream bike to use. And the problems with it were were. Um, not of the way the bike had been made or anything. It was, a, it was an electrical problem with the battery. It's electronic gears. It's not an electric bike, but the bikes change gear electronically. And there was a battery fault, and that's what it was causing the problem. So I had to replace the battery. Once I'd done that, it was all absolutely fine. But this other problem had happened, I think, as a result of the massive amount of force I was putting through going through Yellowstone when I was trapped in the big gear. Right. Because I was putting so much pressure on the bike, I think probably the uh, one of the bearings had worked their way loose a little bit. And then that that sort of repeated cyclical action had actually just distorted the, the threads on the, on the uh, bottom bracket. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the bike was dead. And so I had thought it was all over until I spoke to, to my wife who said, buy another bike, which, you know... <laughs> As a cyclist is, you know, it's the stuff you dream about, right? It's, it's just, and, and, and I went back into the bike, so I think, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I could buy another bike. What bike would I like to have? Thinking, you know, all this array of these fantastic bikes. But the only bike in the shop that would actually fit me, the only bike was an $800 beginner's mountain bike. Right. I mean, it was a really basic bike. And so it was a tenth of the value of mine. And it was just this sit-up-and-beg type thing. And there were two problems with it. The first of which was the brakes were on the other way around. Because in the UK, we have the, the right-hand brake is the front brake, and yeah. the left-hand brake is the back brake. 
in the US, the left-hand brake is the front brake and the right-hand brake is the back brake. Okay. And as you may know, when you're going down fairly steep stuff, mountain biking, you'll feather the bike using the brakes a little bit. You know, you'll skid and move the bike around using the brakes. So I, I remember in Canada coming down this one slope in particular, and I grabbed a handful of what I thought was back brake, but it wasn't. It was the front brake, and it just catapulted me straight over the top of the handlebars down the side of the slope. And that must have happened four or five times. And on one occasion, it was, well, I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning, going down a very, very steep, rocky slope. And it catapulted me and just slammed me down onto the rocks. And it was hurt so much. It was awful. So that was one problem with the bike. And the other problem with the bike was it just had one hand position on the bars. And my racing bike has dropped handlebars and tri bars on it, so you've got about seven or eight different hand positions. So you've got lots of chance to keep your hands, you know, mobile and, and okay. But this one hand position meant that I started to lose sensation in my hands. So first of all, I started to lost my little fingers, couldn't feel those, then my ring fingers, and then my middle fingers, and gradually I started to lose my grip, so I couldn't hold the handlebars properly. So I couldn't change gear using using my thumb anymore. I could only use the palm of my hand to change gear. And so it became a race as to whether I was going to get to the end before I lost complete grip or whether I'd actually get to the end you know and still have any grip left and so I, I did manage to make it to the end with with a little bit of um grip left but but for for months I've, I've only I haven't got sensation in my little fingers yet either and we're now I don't know four or five months afterwards so I couldn't hold zips I couldn't do anything up with my zips because I didn't have any grip to be able yeah. to do that I couldn't open things because I couldn't hold the wrappers of things so it just became a nightmare and then added to the problem when I left the bike shop the day after I left the bike shop on this bike which did the job you know i got to the end i broke a tooth i don't know why but probably the acidic nature of having such sweets to try and keep the sort of the the solar reflex going in the really dry heat so one of the tooth started crumbling away which was uncomfortable but the trouble was the next day i broke another tooth on the other side and so and i had two broken teeth in my <laughs> mouth and the, every time you forgot about it and a bit of food went near them just more of the tooth would crumble away and so you'd end up with these bits of tooth in what you're eating <laughs> which is just just awful but you know it was and I, I, be, I really did begin to think I'm not sure how much more I can cope I really was at the point of thinking if anything else goes wrong yeah. I have now reached my capacity to cope I am going to call it quits but fortunately I did actually manage to make it to the end so you know there's a few troubles along the way and you did make it as the first so uh, I was the first northbound rider yeah yeah somehow bizarrely I ended up um, 500 miles ahead of the next guy and, wow. and, and getting to the finish so um, yeah and were you anticipating kind of lots of calamity? You just sort of had to sort of prepare. You didn't know what they'd be, but you sort of think, yeah, there, are, there is going to be bears and I'm going to fall off. And yeah, of course, the bears. We haven't talked about the bears and all the other wildlife. So you don't know when something's going to go wrong, but you know it will. Mm. And it's the same for you on the Bob Graham run. Something is going to go wrong. The trouble is you just don't know what it is. And so what I've learned in, 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 in training is that you need to go and put yourself out into those difficult circumstances. In the race, you can't plan for when something goes wrong. So you need to experience experience that in training. So you need to get out there and run. If you're going to run in the dark, in the dark, and if it's going to be wet, you need to be out there running in the wet because something will come along that you don't anticipate when you least want it to happen that's going to give you a chance to practice coping with it. And when it happens, you'll think, oh, God, you know, and it'll take you a while to figure it out and what you've got to do. But you'll learn how you cope with that stuff such that when you end up doing something like this, you've no idea where it's going to go wrong. Just You've just got to have learned how to deal with that and, 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 the, and the mental schema to be able to help you deal with it. And, and the best mental schema that I, that I came across was this guy, Lou Holtz, who um, coached the Notre Dame um, American football team, who had this really great question, what's important now? And it's a brilliant question to remind yourself so that, you know, when all this stuff's going wrong, like, you know, the teeth are breaking, of course, they never break in the nice sunshine when it's all pleasant and you go through a town and you can pop into a dentist and sort of thing. It's always at night when it's raining or whatever else. Is you've got to ask them, what's important now? Well, what's important now is to work out you know, is this a race-stopping event or not? So how bad is the pain? Right, okay, so the pain's tolerable. Okay, so what's important now? Well, the, what's important now is, do you think you can keep going? So the answer is yes, you can keep going. Okay, so what's important now then is to get going. 
okay, so what's important now? Well, the important now is you need to work out how you're going to eat food because you now can't eat it in that side of the mouth. So you just keep breaking it down to, right, what's important now? What's important now? And when you break it down to these tiny, tiny little decisions you've got to take, you just keep knocking them down one at a time until eventually you get through them. But if you sit there thinking, I can't cope because it's raining and it's muddy and it's cold and I'm tired and, and my leg hurts and my teeth's broken and my hand, I can't feel my hands and... And, and um, you know, all this stuff that, that's going, it's too much, it overwhelms you. Yeah. And, and you, just, you just end up, you know, a sort of, uh, just a wreck. So you have to just kind of go, well, that's just noise. All that's just noise. What's important now is, you know, how do I keep the bike moving forward? That's the only thing I've got to think about. So you get your head around that type of mentality. I think it can be quite helpful. One final quick question. Uh, what's next? What's, the, what's the, the next big goal? I'm hatching a plan on that. I'm hatching a plan. There, there, there is one, but maybe it's not for this this conversation today. But there is there is a plan, and it's 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 developing nicely, and it's huge. Uh, I'm sure it is huge. <laughs> thank you very much, Tom. That's been thank brilliant you, and really thank informative. You. Good. Thank you very much. What a great story. Thank you so much, Dominic Irvin, for all of that advice and wisdom. It stood us in good stead as we prepared for our Bob Graham round some eight months into the future. Another person I spoke to at the end of November 2018 was fell running legend Nikki Spinks, who has great stories to tell as well and down-to-earth practical advice. I have what I call a useful bag, and it has stuff in it that would hopefully fix anything. I mean, obviously it's at road support, but it has, like, gaffer tape in it and laces, string, scissors, needles... 99% 99% of the time you don't need them but then like on the Bob Graham record where I cut my hand the first thing I asked for was the useful bag because I knew there was some various amounts of tape that could be used to stick my hand back together so every now and again the useful bag comes in useful <laughs> 